Welcome to Mints On Air and Client Corner, perspectives from founders, financiers, and friends. I am Josh Fox. In each episode of this podcast, I will be joined by an entrepreneur, an investor, or a member of the startup community. My guests will share their experiences in starting and running a business, investing in a business, and helping to support a business. I hope that my conversations with my friends will provide valuable advice to you, help those of you who are building a business to make it successful, and inspire those of you who are thinking about starting a new venture. My guest today is Gio Traverso, MIT professor, founder of several biotech companies, and a physician. Gio, welcome to the show. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Gio, you and I have known each other for over six years, and we have started six companies together, four for-profit entities and two non-profit entities. For our first part of the show, I'd like to ask you about each of the for-profit entities. In 2017, you and I first started working together on Suono Bio. Could you describe why you founded Suono and what the mission of the company is? You know, so as with most of these ventures, this is really a team effort, you know, and I really refer to and use the term team in the broadest sense and that it includes a team of founders, a team of scientists, but even a broader team, including the attorneys that really help enable a lot of the processes and infrastructure. And about over 10 years ago now, I had the good fortune of meeting a wonderful scientist who was a graduate student at MIT at the time, whose name is Carl Scholhammer, who was a graduate student in Bob Langer's lab. And I was completing my fellowship research there as well. And through several conversations and meetings, we sort of converged on the potential to apply ultrasound at very specific frequencies to really support delivery of molecules across the GI tract, which generally have a lot of trouble getting across the GI tract. We started working with you, as well as several investors, as well as strategic partners to form this company. And we formed Suono Bio. Suono is now a clinical stage company. And so actually the technology has now been evaluated in human subjects. And so that's you know extremely exciting to see sort of that development. It completed a Series A a couple of years ago to really help support further development in really the clinical stage or early clinical stage of development. And additionally, recently, they've beyond the original founding intellectual property, there's further intellectual property that Suono has developed, but also that they've licensed from MIT to really help amplify their portfolio around ingestible systems that enable the delivery of a broad array of molecules. And very specifically, the technical term is a biologic. Bilayer Therapeutics, the second company that you and I started together, that was back in 2020. Could you talk about why you started that business? Yes. And this, you know, again, I refer to team because I do feel whether it's in the professional or personal side, I think, you know, life is a team sport. And I think here again, we had a wonderful team. There were some initial conversations that I'd had with a good colleague and friend at Brigham, Brigham Women's Hospital, which is a hospital here in Boston, which is where I serve as a gastroenterologist. And specifically, this is Josh Korsnick there, who is a very well-known IBD or inflammatory bowel disease specialist. And we were discussing different concepts. And one of them was the role, or I should say, 
the potential application of bile acids to a range of different diseases. It was a very talented postdoctoral scientist at the time who was working with my group and Bob Langer's group as well. His name is Christoph Steiger. And Christoph is an incredibly talented pharmaceutical scientist. And you know, we started talking about these observations and Christoph really helped develop the technology around delivering bile acids to the colon. And the system that we developed is a two-layer process. And that's where the name bilayer comes from. And so once we actually demonstrated that we could do this, and initially this is in a preclinical model in a pig, we really saw an opportunity to help bring those technologies again out of the lab towards getting them to patients. And that next step here was the formation of a company, that company being Bilayer. And we together with a CEO that we recruited, and that's Thomas Collette, we're able to assemble a team. And so where Bilayer is at from a company stage or fundraising stage is that they close the seed round. That really has enabled regulatory engagement, manufacturing engagement, and currently fundraising for their Series A to really help catalyze the transition to the clinical stage with respect to taking this drug forward into human subjects. What I'm hearing already, Gio, with just the first two companies that we've talked about is how critical it has been for you as part of the process to form a team. You have named a number of different people who have worked on each of these two startups. Could you talk about how difficult it is to find the right people to help start these businesses? It is the hardest part of doing this. And I think, you know, we all learn, you know, through all of these experiences. And you know, I think finding team members that are experienced, that are motivated, that have, I would say, the unique ability to walk through walls and and do what sometimes appears almost impossible, I think is very challenging. And I would say that is one of the hardest aspects of doing this. I think certainly doing the science and the engineering is hard, but it's not what is rate limiting. Really what is limiting, I find, is identifying and having the right collaborators and teammates from a business side. And I think the business side is critical. And without that, you know, one really can't move forward effectively. And I find that to be the most challenging aspect of uh, really participating in this process. And looking at the broader ecosystem, do you think there's a reason for that? Why is it that finding business partner or management team that has strong business experience is so difficult for you as an experienced startup founder with the scientific you know, network that you have and, and the people that you know, is there something broader in the biotech community that could be done or that, that needs to be done to help with this? I think the challenge here is finding someone who is interested in company formation and company formation that is separate from a venture capital group or an investor group. So essentially, it is a an entrepreneur from a business from the business side that is not linked already to a venture capital firm. 
several of the VCs have their own entrepreneurs. And essentially, that already de-risks the initial seed investment. This is different, right? In these examples, it's individuals who will, and certainly I participate a lot in this, but will go out and fundraise and their focus is on the company. It's not that they're an employee or working under the umbrella of a VC. So that is different. And I think it's a rare individual. And I think it's because there's just more risk and it is harder. I think that's the reason, you know. Now, I'm certainly, we work with VCs and certainly also with, you know, entrepreneurs or residents, for example. And, and that's also a wonderful model. You know, I just think the examples that I've given you and the ones that I've directly sort of engaged in and the examples that we're going to chat about are all in the former sort of category where there are individuals who not tied to any funding body, but really looking to start a fresh, start a new company. And that involves everything from the really evaluating the concept, trying to understand the risk, and then doing the fundraising themselves to really you know, help continue to grow that business. And so that's why I think it's hard. And I think there are few people that, that there are fewer people that do that. You know, that's at least what I tend to see. But, you know, certainly there are several others out there. And that, I mean, many people do do this. And I, you know, some of the uh, academic or student led, for example, efforts are like this, where individuals will transition from academia into the early stage sort of biotech. But having identifying individuals that are a bit more experienced that want to do this again and again. It's just harder and, and they're just fewer. And so it takes a little bit of time to find them. But, you know, they're certainly out there. And, and you know, I, I certainly spend quite a bit of time meeting with folks, you know, just trying to understand what they're looking to do and their interests and trying to see if there's any potential synergy. Talking about teams, I'd like to go back to the third team that you and I started working on together. That's the Teal Bio team. That was back in 2021. What is the mission of Teal Bio? So the mission there is really centered around respirators, but maybe let me just dial the clock back to early 2020. And I think when I think about that time, one of the things that I remember very clearly in February and March was the level of, I would say, purpose and focus that many of our lab team members sort of expressed with respect to trying to help. By that, I mean to help with respect to the pandemic. There was uh, a, a wonderful MBA student uh, who had approached me earlier in the year to really think about areas that he might sort of engage with our group. And this is Jason Troutner. And then together with several team members, including it was a wonderful research engineer in our group, uh, also very talented, MD-PhD. His name is James Byrne. The research engineer is Adam Wentworth. And so together with the team, as well as Bob Langer, was actually also involved in several other respirator approaches. Um, and so together as a team and with several wonderful advisors, we formed Teal Bio, which is a company that is focused on the development of these respirators. And so 
you know, of all of the work that we were doing at the time, that was one of the entities that we formed to help bring those technologies forward. And, you know, I think to this day, and, you know, whether you're at the airport or you're on the, on the T here in Boston, I mean, masks, I believe are here to stay. And I think it, you know, the pandemic has given us perhaps a deeper appreciation for infectious risk associated with aerosols, you know, even beyond COVID-related infections. And I think that is one of the effects. But I think also, you know, if we look at this past summer, what we also recognize is that there are other environmental, essentially, risks. And what I'm referring to here are the fires that were actually impacting, for example, the air quality all along the Northeast. And there are some very dramatic photos of New York City. But, you know, that those particulates were present all the way to the Northeast, all the way down to Washington, D.C. And, and 95s were, again, in, in short supply. And so that, you know, the focus of TL is to develop that respirator. And the TL is a good example to me of a problem that came to light almost out of nowhere. The, the pandemic was something that no one, I think, expected and certainly not in, in the form that it took. So it's interesting to see how you and the team were able to move science as quickly you know, forward as you have to try to attack that problem. On, on the issue of problems and solutions and starting businesses, could you talk about what problems Syntis Bio, which we, were, we started working together on in 2022, is designed to solve? Yes, no, absolutely. And that's a little bit of a longer story. So so let me turn the clock back now to about 2014, 2015. And this was around the fall or winter, or this was no fall or end of 2014 or so. I was invited to a really interesting meeting with the Gates Foundation leadership, as well as some other major advisors. The team asked me, you know, what did I think they should be investing or really developing it, at, you know, further? And this is the team meeting of the Gates Foundation. And at the time, my son was three and our daughter was one. And what I said was, you know, I, as a gastroenterologist that was trained in Boston, living in the Boston area, have difficulty in administering medications to my kids. I can only imagine what it's like to do this in a resource-constrained setting. And therefore, to me, it would make sense if there was a focus on pediatric dosing. And that was a conversation that went on for a couple of years. And together with the foundation team, we developed a plan and a major grant came out of these discussions about two years later. And that grant was focused on developing systems for children or kids, pediatric patients, particularly in the zero to five age group. And the big challenge that we recognize is that young people have a tough time taking tablets as well as capsules. And so we set out a path to develop two different approaches, one that was composed of new approach to this challenge and another one that essentially repurposed materials, but where the systems could support liquid or gel-like formulations to really help facilitate dosing to, to children. 
And one of these approaches was the technology behind Synthesis. And this was work that was led by a wonderful scientist at the time in our group. His name is John Wei Lee. What we developed is a system that you can either ingest as a liquid or it can be a solid as a tablet. But when you ingest it, it forms a coating in your small intestine. And so we did all this work. And I had the good fortune of being introduced to a wonderful CEO. This is Rahul Danda early in 2022. And we started thinking about projects. And Rahul is one of those unique entrepreneurs that we were talking about where, you know, he really wanted to dive into a problem, a challenge, and really then build a company around this. And that's exactly, you know, what we did with Rahul. And, and basically, we fundraised and it was a, you know, a very tough, I would say, time for fundraising in, in 2022. I mean, still fundraising is challenging at the moment. And we were able to launch the company towards the end of 2022. You know, and now Tintus has a team of somewhere around 15 people and really, you know, have some very exciting developments around a you know, fairly broad set of applications. And, but that's sort of the journey that we took. And yeah, but hopefully that gives you a little bit of a sense on, on, on Synthesis. It does. And what stood out to me, Gio, and as you were telling the story, I was thinking it was amazing to, to see the history and how long it took to develop this idea. It was over a period of years from when you and your team first started working on the idea towards the formation of the entity, continuing forward to the fundraising that Synthesis concluded recently. How typical a path is that from your perspective? Are many of the companies that you start taking years in the laboratory working on science before you ever decide it's it's time to move this forward and try to commercialize it? Yes, it would be the short answer. In general, what we're trying to do in the lab is you know, our focus is to develop new solutions for you know, different problems that, that we recognize. And sometimes we recognize them directly. Sometimes there are problems that we identify together with our collaborators or sources of funding, whether it be the Gates Foundation or Department of Defense, or NIH, and others. And so de-risking the engineering or the science, you know, usually, usually can, you know, will take years, a lot of the biomedical questions that we're looking at. And we really try and de-risk this as much as possible. And in some instances, for example, you know, we'll do that to the preclinical stage where we show how something can work well, let's say in a model. And then in some instances now, for example, we're doing some first in human work where, you know, our goal is to develop and really de-risk the approaches in humans and then use uh, that essential data set to help really bolster, I would say, the narrative, but also the potential of the technologies and work with investors and partners to continue to develop it. And then typically we publish and, you know, publication is, is a way of having independent peer review and essentially independent evaluation of the work. And, and usually, you know, again, there are no absolutes, but often we have a publication by the time that we are forming a company because we have that external validation with respect to the body of work. So, you know, an aggregate, like all those steps sort of typically, you know, will add up to, to several years. 
And when is the right time from your perspective to spin out technology from your lab? I think it depends on a few things. One is ideally, for me at least, having de-risked the technology either in large animal model or in a human, to me lends a tremendous amount of confidence that, you know, this the body of work will translate into humans and and you know further development towards a product. So from a data perspective, I think that's important. I think another critical aspect that this is really speaks to the team is that sometimes there are team members who are really involved and invested in the process. And I think whenever we have team members that are interested in continuing, I think that's that's really a great thing to nurture. So, you know, I would look at it from those perspectives. And, and you know, and generally, if we can meet those, then I feel that the time is right. I think the other aspect is sort of external forces, right, with respect to investment. And, you know, and sometimes there is funds that are interested in certain projects. And if the timing's right from that perspective, then that may influence the timing of the the formation and spinning out of the company. And sometimes it is harder as it is now, and it just takes longer. And so, you know, then it's having those conversations and sometimes the burden of proof or, you know, the level of de-risking perhaps increases as a function of there being more limited capital for early stage companies. So yeah, hopefully that gives you a little bit of a sense. It does. Moving to the topic of raising capital, since you have been involved in that process for a number of your startups. Could you talk about what role you personally play? And for those people who haven't gone through the process of raising capital, could you advise them on what the process is like? As most things in life, I think it is better or easier to ask for advice than ask for something. And that I think applies to funding as well. And so asking colleagues who are investors themselves, whether it be because of the entity that they represent or work for, or you know because they are angels, asking them for advice on their thoughts on, let's say, a new venture, I think can be really helpful with respect to constructing the narrative, understanding the weaknesses of the current proposition for the business, but also gauge their own interest in potentially investing in this entity. So again, I think asking for advice is a, I think a general strategy that I think is more fruitful than directly saying like, are you, you know, interested in investing? And I think it's often, you know, I think these conversations are not a binary conversation, but rather, you know, I think these are relationships and interactions that that are important to sort of support over the long term. Because it may be that this opportunity is not the one for this investor, but maybe the next one is. And usually, investors will see many opportunities, and I think they have the ability to give very good and constructive feedback on areas that perhaps that I know I'm not an expert on, like, for example, some of the business of things. And so, you know, I certainly welcome that input and advice. Like, I, I think it's general a good strategy, but I also personally appreciate the advice because I have less insight to some of the business pieces. And so having that input, I think it'd be really helpful. When we sort of reach that point and we start to really engage 
investors, generally we limit the number of engagement or interactions and conversations to, to just a few groups. Honestly, to have feedback on the general narrative and opportunity to ensure that, you know, at least our beliefs are reasonable. And, you know, we before we sort of even amplify to, you know, a slightly bigger group. So there's sort of a friendly, I would say, close friends that that we have that we can have perhaps a, a candid conversation and then continue to iterate on the narrative. But that's my my two to three cents on that. What do you think is the key to a successful pitch to investors? I think providing focus of the company and at the same time, the balance with respect to the opportunity that is that one can build upon is important. I think providing a very a cohesive use of capital and proceeds, so having clarity on exactly how one is going to apply these funds. And so understanding the regulatory and manufacturing processes, I think are all important. And then the team that is really behind this, as well as the intellectual property that's associated with the technologies. I think all of those aspects are are really critical. And again, so the focus and the focus is related to essentially the opportunity of the business case and then also the the vision of sort of the broader business case. And the information that you've shared, Geo, allows investors to evaluate the opportunity. How do you evaluate the investor? No, that's a great question. And I think that comes just from prior interactions as well as asking others essentially, it, you know, what it's like to work with them. And so it's, you know, ask, getting references. And sometimes we do that. And, uh, you know, essentially by speaking with colleagues who work with. Gio, as I mentioned in the introduction, you and I have formed two nonprofits together. Could you talk about why you formed those entities and why you decided not to use for-profit entities to address the problems that those nonprofits are trying to solve? And some of the other areas that we were very active in during the early days of the pandemic, one that really moved very quickly and we recognized there was a need at the time was in ventilation support. And by that, I mean very specifically intubating a patient essentially and supporting their lung function. And, and at the time, in the early days of the pandemic, there was a shortage of ventilators. And one of the areas that we looked at was really amplifying the capacity of current ventilators. So meaning, could we use a single ventilator to support multiple patients? And this was work that was led by very talented postdoctoral scientist, Shriya Srinivasan. It's an area where you know there, there are several companies that make these machines. And so we felt that the interventions that we could really have an impact with were both education as well as uh, potentially the actual consumables. But really education and training was a big part of this. And as a function of that, we co-founded Prada. Maybe let me pause there and I can, uh, in case there are any questions. Well, I think the one question that our audience may still be wondering is, why didn't you and your team form a for-profit entity to do that? So, yeah, great question. At the time, we felt that, and, and we had spoken to several people about trying to obtain funds, and just from a fundraising perspective, the kind of capital that was accessible seemed to be more in the donation format. And 
receiving donations as a not-for-profit seemed to us at the time to actually be enabling even for the donors or potentially supporting the donors, even from a tax perspective, as opposed to an investment in a company. I think the other aspect is the optics of a not-for-profit versus a for-profit entity that is trying to help the globe. And so I think there were multiple reasons that went into uh, thinking through. And even I recall this conversation with you when we thought about it, talked about a B Corp, for example, where, you know, the pros and cons of doing that as well, right? And I think that's what I value sort of, of our interactions over the years is being able to to honestly learn and 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 think through sort of some of these challenges as they come up. But I remember that conversation very clearly. And certainly that was part of, I would say, the data that, you know, we weighed as we considered sort of the different options. Right. Now, I remember that conversation as well, Gio. So with that, do you want to move toward our discussion related to the second nonprofit? Absolutely. And, and, and so the second not-for-profit is sort of a concept that I had been nursing for a few years and really came from multiple observations from work that we do academically, where there are clear developments that come out from the academic realm that are of interest to venture capital group, for example, from an investment perspective, where, where there's clear line of sight that may be even you know near term as far as sort of a transformative intervention, whether it be a therapeutic, a device, and we are clear market, high value market potentially in in the developed world is you know readily visible. And so those are, I think we know and we can we have a good sense as to what those are and we know how to, I would say, move those forward based on our experience, you know, together. But there are certainly many in- interventions and systems that we develop academically that the road is a little bit longer sometimes where there, we just, the technologies need more time to be developed further or whether it's for risk to be addressed, whether it be regulatory risk or manufacturing risk, or where the indication on the surface may seem by perhaps a traditional, let's say, venture VC investor as a smaller market. And so we started a not-for-profit few years ago called Solvandria, together with several collaborators, that is really focused on that aspect, which is to help nurture early stage technologies through some of the critical experiments to continue to demonstrate that the technologies or approaches are both safe, but also efficacious. And so, it's essentially filling or trying or attempting to fill a gap. There is often people will refer to something or essentially this this space or time between early stage academia and product development, the sort of the valley of death. And it is a way of trying to bridge that valley because of its role. We thought a lot about whether to have this be a not-for-profit or for-profit entity. And again, we felt that the mission of this entity was really to support the development of early-stage technologies with an initial focus on systems that will help the globe and also to help train individuals that are passionate about doing this. And so meeting those different elements of both 
supporting early stage technologies for particularly resource constrained areas, for example, but also this mandate of training, we felt that that was better served by a not-for-profit. The other sort of logistical aspect is that it is often a not-for-profit can interact with other not-for-profits and with for-profits more easily than a for-profit can interact with not-for-profits. And that is more the logistics of and the streams of income, you know, meaning like funds, grants, I mean specifically, because a lot of this work is supported by grants, whether it be from foundations or the federal government or even industry. For all of those reasons, we felt that that was the right approach. You know, perhaps we can have another conversation in five to 10 years and I can tell you what I think then. <laughs> but, you know, we all will learn. And I think that's, yeah, that's the story behind the two, the two not-for-profits. I look forward to that conversation five to 10 years from now, Gio. Another topic I want to cover with you today is the, the topic of university licensing. When you've decided to move technology out of your lab and start a new company, you need that company to obtain a license to the intellectual property from the university at which the IP was developed. Could you talk about what that process has been like? How challenging is it? What advice do you have for entrepreneurs who have never been through that process before? Yes, of course, happy to. And, and I think having a good, healthy relationship with the licensing office is, is critical for people who are interested in translating the technologies out of the academic realm. And that's for many reasons. But one of them is, one, just understanding and learning the process and understanding you know, their perspective. And ultimately, it's the institution that owns the intellectual property. It's not the individual academics, right? And it's, it's the institutions also that make the decisions with respect to licensing, the terms, the fields of use, all of these aspects. And I encourage, again, folks to really have a, I think having a good sense on timing so that one has line of sight on when the costs are going to start to hit, give someone a sense on when they should be engaging with investors because they need a plan in place so that someone can help pick up the cost that are associated with conversion events, prosecution events. And for my final question today, Gio, you have many different roles in your life. You're a professor, a physician, founder of both startup, biotech, for-profit entities, as well as a founder of nonprofit entities. You're a board member of many different companies, and you're a husband and a father as well. How do you manage to do all of that? So I think life is a team sport, and I, you know, and I think it's <clears throat> having an amazing team, right? Whether it's at home, uh, you know, with my wife, with my partner, or whether it's at work with our students, the programmatic administrative staff, whether it's externally, right? I mean, you and I have worked for many years, and we worked together for for you know. I think if we didn't get along, <laughs> we don't work well together. You know, <laughs> that we wouldn't continue. I think it's like any relationship in life, and so. I think we, you know, I'm, I'm, I've been very fortunate and I have an incredible team to really sort of work together on, on this journey. And I think I've tried to foster and nurture uh, essentially a wonderful team across all these different arenas, I would say, to facilitate that. And, you know, and I, and I think that is really central. I think is recognizing that what we do as a team sport, and I think that applies to you know everything as well with respect to also credit and compensation and all of those things too. And I think 
as long as, you know, I, I think one tries to follow the golden rule and treat others as one wants to be treated, um, I feel like that usually, you know, works, works out well. And I feel um, at least that's what I try and do. And I don't, you know, and so, yeah, I mean, I think that, that's it. I mean, it's as simple as that. I think it's really appreciating that it is a team sport and reaching out for help, reaching out for advice, nurturing, you know, the relationships that are positive and that are helpful. And I should say, like, there are relationships that are not, right? And I think one needs to recognize that. And I think it, that's okay. That's part of the process. And negative experiences are all part of our learning too. And uh, But that's what I would say sort of enables and supports at least, you know, what I do or what we do as a whole across all of those different areas. I agree, Gio. We all need help to be successful. And the help can come in many different shapes and sizes and forms. And I'm grateful to you for being on my show today. I also am grateful to have the relationship that we have. Thank you, Gio. Thank you so much. And thanks for having me on the show. And to our audience, until next time on Client Corner, keep on building. Keep on building.